0: Welcome to another episode of the Digital Humanities in East Asian Studies podcast. I'm Amanda Schumann, and co-hosting today with me are, again, Alan Christie and Maggie Green. Nice to have you both back again after some time.
1: Hello. It's delightful to be back. Nice to see you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Today, we're really excited. We've invited Ruth Mostern as our special guest to talk about digital mapping and spatial histories. Ruth is an associate professor of world history at the University of Pittsburgh and a specialist in spatial and environmental history, focusing on imperial China and the world. In addition to her very long list of print publications, including a book on spatial organization of the Song state, articles in digital humanities journals, and a recent edited volume on digital gazetteers, she has also authored two major digital publications. And we'll talk about those in a few minutes. Her current research reconstructs the environmental history of the Yellow River as a human and natural system and involves studying the entire river basin, which stretches from Tibetan Plateau to the Pacific Ocean, during a very long time frame, a time frame of approximately 5,000 years in order to assess when and to what degree human activity in the upper and middle reaches of the river increased the risk of flooding on the densely populated lower course of the river. This project entails creating a digital atlas that includes a GIS and data Database of the dates and locations of disasters and civil engineering works in the river basin. The goal of this atlas is to support interdisciplinary advances in the understanding of large scale human environmental impact. She is additionally leading a collaborative initiative to create a world historical gazetteer that can facilitate the geocoding of linked open data for large scale and long term historical analysis. Ruth, welcome to DH East Asia. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we talk a lot about the specific projects you're working on now, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about your background, so how you got started in researching China and world history, and in particular, how you got started in digital projects and work.
2: Yeah, so I I was in graduate school at Berkeley in the 1990s, and well into my Dissertation writing process, I was not doing anything digital at all. In fact, I was a grad student before the term digital humanities even existed, before there were any VAT camps or DH conferences or anything. So there wasn't even really a field for me to identify as being part of. And when I was working on my dissertation about the spatial organization of the Song state, I started making literally lists with pencil and paper of the occasions when counties and prefectures in Song, China were established, disestablished or moved from one parent entity to another and print reference work that was organized completely differently than around these acts of spatial change. But I just kind of walked backwards into realizing that these instances of spatial reorganization were an interesting and significant question and literally, like I said, wrote out lists of these things on pencil and paper, not even with a spreadsheet, certainly not with any other software, not with any kind of visualization in mind. And I still remember that the first AAS where I presented this work in progress as a grad student, I was literally presenting transparencies. I had photocopied (laughs) a blank map of Song China onto, you know, acetates. And then with a grease pencil or a whiteboard marker was kind of marking out this information on them. That's how I did my first presentation. That would have been 1998, I believe. And in the audience when I did that was Thomas Hahn, who was a librarian, I believe, at that time at University of Wisconsin, and had just gotten involved with a project based at Berkeley, but I did not know about it. I was actually living in Japan at the time. And I'd just come back from, I'd just spent a year in Taiwan before that. This project based at Berkeley under the direction of Lou Lancaster, who was a professor in Buddhist studies. And the project was called the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative, which started out as Lou's project to trace the spatial and temporal movement of the Buddhist canon across the Buddhist world, looking at how and why. Buddhist sacred texts ended up in different versions and different configurations in different places in that religious tradition, which would already have been a huge life's work. But in addition, he also felt like it was impo- important to put that in the context of the entire history of cultural geography of every place ever touched by Buddhism, which is to say the entire globe. And um, had started at that time to gather around him groups of technically-minded people, data-oriented people, content-modeling people, geographers of different kinds to help conceptualize what a project like this might entail, where the content was to be found, what kind of infrastructure and architecture and standards development, it would entail this hugely ambitious and open-ended project. And so when I was uh, doing this thing with acetates based on my dissertation at AAS, Thomas Hahn, this librarian from Wisconsin, was in the audience, came up to me afterwards and said, you need to get together with Lou Lancaster at Berkeley. That ended up being absolutely life-changing for me. I mean, truly mind-blowing probably put off my dissertation completion for a full two or three years. It was totally diverting. Um, But in the best way, it was probably the equivalent of a master's degree worth of retraining and put me straight into the middle of this emerging intellectual community around the spatial humanities and the digital humanities and really, you know, the whole range of Kinds of questions. How do you link together loosely knit international consortia of people doing development on their own machines, sending it out into the cloud? What kinds of standards do you need in order for those projects to be integrated with one another? What kind of data format do you want? How can you come up with a visualization front end that allows all of this work to be linked and used together? How do you do data modeling for historical spatial information? Every question that we are still grappling with, EKI was really years ahead of its time in terms of even knowing what questions to ask, let alone coming up with some answers. And uh, it ended up really being a kind of a laboratory project, by which I mean that it didn't result in sort of fully finished, stress tested, beautiful product, but was absolutely formative for myself and for many other people gathered around that group in terms of really articulating an entirely new field. And there are people I'm still collaborating with 20 years later at this point who first experimented with data models and code and platforms and standards as part of the consortium around EKI. So that's what got me started in all of this. hugely transformative and um, really a project that I'm not sure has quite gotten the credit that it's due as we're starting to be at the point of writing our own histories of this field.
0: We're
1: all historians here, so bringing up the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative is a great thing to have uh, to remind us about this pretty extraordinary project. Did you have a sense, you know, when when we otherwise tell histories of digital humanities emergence, you know, the Perseus Collection is another one of those that that comes Mm -hmm. up often. Were people at the Electronic Cultural Atlas Initiative, were they engaged with the Perseus Collection in any way? Was that a model for them to think and to divert from or to hear to?
2: Absolutely. And one of the things that was so extraordinary for me about Ikai is that Lou Lancaster was very interested in trying to bring together people to talk to each other. And a lot of the early funding for that project was about organizing huge international conferences just to get people at the table, and Greg Crane and his collaborators around Perseus were among the main people we were talking to at that time. Perseus, I guess, has always been a little bit more oriented towards text. What was particular about EKI and is still quite unique about it among the large-scale digital humanities projects is that it was map and data first. It was never really in the text archive, text markup kind of world. It was in the spatial data set world, which is why my trajectory since then has really stayed focused on the notion of the gazetteer, Mm -hmm. partly because that was my original work for my dissertation and my first book, but also because that was the orientation of Ikai.
0: So is Ikai still, is it, is it available? I should have looked at it in advance, but um, (laughs) no, I mean, that's what I'm doing right now, actually. Um, I believe
2: the website is still up. I think it's ikai.org still. yeah. Um, Yeah. It hasn't been updated much and it hasn't had new funding, but Lou, who is now well into his 80s, still uses Ikai as a sort of a touch point for his activity and is still doing exactly this kind of globally collaborative consortium building spatial modeling focused work on the history of the Buddhist canon. And the project he's been working on for the last number of years is Atlas of Maritime Buddhism. For most of his career, he focused on the overland spread of Buddhism and the transformation of the Buddhist canon along overland Mm -hmm. routes. And he's now turned his attention to the sea. And Ikai Mm -hmm. is still one of the rubrics that he uses in order to focus his collaborative activities.
1: So while well, uh, she's looking at that, th- there's another question that uh, I have from what you were talking about, Ruth, and that is, of course, this experience of the diversion within your graduate training career, which is, I think, one of the great fears that a number of people have. I know that, you know, Amanda came to the graduate program at the University of California, Santa Cruz, with this background from the uh, Roy Rosenzweig Center for History and, and uh, New Media, and yet. Yeah, because none of us had that kind of background amongst other things there was a great deal of reluctance to to let or to encourage Amanda I should say to really Take advantage of that kind of platform for doing her work. The idea was to get a a standard dissertation out for recognizability and for it to be the platform for you to produce the manuscript that will then, you know, launch your career. And precisely, I think if uh, Amanda's advisor heard uh, you telling the story of being diverted for two years, it might, (laughs) (laughs) it might not make her any happier. And certainly, I've (laughs) had the same fear as I as I have my own smaller number of graduate students. I've asked one to join in a digital project. But I waited until he was done with his dissertation. And it was a question that I really wrestled with. So could you say a little bit more about how, you know, your advisors handled this and what it meant for yourself in terms of managing that time?
2: Right. It's a good question. And it's a delicate question. And, um, you know, I will say forthrightly that this caused a good deal of friction between myself and my original advisor, who I think didn't understand how I was spending my time. And I wasn't able to articulate an account of what I was doing to him in a way that was persuasive to him. And at the same time, kind of in parallel with becoming more and more involved with this collaborative international digital project, I was also coming to realize kind of backed into an understanding of what I was trying to accomplish with this project of my own, my own database development project that had started out as this, you know, list of events written out longhand on a piece of paper. But it was not a project that had good models in the literature. And I was only coming to my understanding of it as I was doing it as one always does, and especially as a graduate student. And so there also, I wasn't able to make a good account to my original advisor of what I was trying to accomplish with that project. And as my dissertation writing progressed, you know, I would go into meetings with him and I would say, well, look, I'm coming up with these kinds of, you know, empire-wide structural accounts of what was going on with local geography. And he would say, well, that's very interesting, but where are your case studies? And I would say, there aren't, there aren't any. It's not that kind of project. I'm not going to be going deep on specific cases. I'm trying to do something that accounts for the spatial organization of the entire empire.
1: Which sounds awfully bold for graduate students to be saying, right? No, no, no. I'm going to go for the entire empire, okay? I'm going to the go for the interest.
2: entire empire for 300 years. I have no studies. That's literally yeah. what i think my advisor. And um, his, his patience ran war thin, which I can certainly respect in retrospect. Um, at the time, it was certainly a source of friction and anguish for both of us. And in the end, I ended up switching advisors and working with Lou Lancaster Even though he was in the East Asian Languages Department and not in history, I kind of got a dispensation at the end when... I realized that after a very, very long time in grad school, I was about to be orphaned. I'm super grateful for the leadership of the department and the graduate division for allowing me to make a kind of audacious last minute move. And I should say in the context of this that I do not for a minute have any ill will toward my original advisor. Now Now that I sit on the other side of the desk, I can see why I seemed adrift and intractable while all of was going on. I'm grateful that things ended up the way they did. I should also add that I am a fan of the long degree, the long time to degree for people who need a long time to degree. And I know that that puts me at odds with trends in the profession, the way university administrations think about time to degree, the way funders think about time to degree, The Mellon Foundation has put a ton of money into shortening times times to degree in the humanities, but I would not be here today. I don't mean I would not be here today as the kind of historian I am. I just simply think I would have dropped out of grad school if I had been pressured to finish more quickly. Not only did I need that time to get re-energized, as a digital practitioner and somebody pursuing these innovative and collaborative new kinds of activities. But I needed time, given that I was trying to do work in a field that didn't even exist. I mean, my own dissertation was innovative and not following models. I needed all that time just to make sense to myself of what I was trying to accomplish. And It took a long time, it took a long time, but I feel like in retrospect, I can make a great account of why I needed all that time and how it made me into a more interesting scholar and simply somebody who was able to stay in the profession because I needed the time in order to understand what I was trying to do and what role I would play in the
1: field. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the long time as well. Having been a, a, a long time person myself with, I found myself in a seminar in Japan that was a second kind of training in a, in a very big way. And then for a variety of accidents, able to stay in Japan for four years right. without any, any serious problems. So I took nine years to finish up and it, I wouldn't give up a moment of those. I understand why everybody's putting this kind of pressure on, but I do like you lament it. Can I ask one more follow up? Yeah, well, rich, actually,
2: if I can just say something more sure. about the lost time to degree, get on a hobby horse about this sometimes, is that in the sciences, it's true that people only take four or five years to finish their degree, but then they do postdoc after postdoc after postdoc, and each time they're at a postdoc in somebody's lab for two or three years or out in the field with someone for two or three years, they're getting that kind of depth and retraining before they become fully independent scholars themselves. So that four or five years to a degree in the sciences actually becomes six or eight or ten years prior to most scientists landing a tenure track position. That kind of infrastructure, as we all know, doesn't exist in the humanities. It's just barely kind of starting to. But what that means is that if we're doing four or five year degrees as the funders and our administrations want us to, then we're going out into a world where we're expected to get tenure track jobs after those four or five year degrees, which also isn't happening. So there isn't really a solution. You know, the solution is that becoming an innovative, independent, confident, scholar takes the amount of time it takes and if universities aren't subsidizing graduate students in the humanities to do that work it basically means that people are then kind of being thrust out into the capitalist marketplace without being fully trained and without any kind of institutional support to move forward here
1: here that let's uh yeah that's actually really good you know, I'd been a doctor for two weeks at the point where I became an assistant professor, and getting kicked out of the nest from happy Asianist land at UC San Diego to the wilds of Montana has been um, a terrible transition in a lot of mm-hmm. respects. Because I am expected to be, you know, right now I'm trying to deal with book publication stuff, and I've never published. How am I supposed to know what to do? You know, I've never published mm-hmm. a book. Um, but, of course, I'm supposed to be this fully fleshed out grown up scholar, even though, yeah, they you know I was a b d when I got hired, so I had no idea what was going on. But I think that's a really excellent point
0: mm-hmm. um
1: and one that doesn't get talked about, and some of the differences between the humanities and the STEM fields in terms of career trajectories.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. let me just quickly add that the structure is is rather different over here in Europe, as you might be familiar with. It depends on how you look at it, really. Here, a lot of the PhD offerings tend to be usually three or four years where they pay for everything and you don't actually have to TA. You don't actually have to do these, but they expect a degree after three or four years and you're within Mm -hmm. the confines of the project. So you're funded for the project. But what it also means is exactly, you know, and here I'm not just speaking about the project I'm on. I'm really speaking more generally. It really shows in terms of the work that is produced, the types of dissertations Mm -hmm. that are produced, and also in terms of people's knowledge base. And they just aren't able to have quite as well-rounded background to go into their dissertation. So they spend three or four years, and most of that time, they're encouraged to just start doing research and get right into their Mm -hmm. dissertation. They don't really have the time or the structures that allow them to think about their materials in a broader context. It's a very sort of fast-track to a mm-hmm. degree, and so I do see things that are lost, and I, I, I think it reflects in the field as a whole when you look at the types of monographs that are published and, and, and whatnot. The upside, from an administrative point of view at least, and from a lifestyle point of view, is that, you know, hey, three or four years to my PhD, and it's all paid for, and I don't have mm-hmm. to apply for all these grants. So I see both sides.
1: Well, if I could follow up on then on, uh, because Ruth, you did an innovative dissertation,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: one of the questions about innovation is, you know, is there a follow-up, not Mm -hmm. for you, but within the department? Did the experience of, you know, guiding you through your dissertation and seeing it succeed, and of course seeing the success that you've had in your work subsequently, has that, do you think, left any mark at your home program? Hmm.
2: That's an interesting question. You know, because I was finishing my degree at the time that the digital humanities was emerging as a field in general and a focus of interest for humanities departments and humanities grad students, I'm not sure how much I can point to me as an individual, as an innovator, rather than simply having been, I didn't know it at the time. At the time, I was just kind of wandering in the wilderness and figuring out how to articulate what I was doing to myself and my committee. But in retrospect, I was clearly part of that first generation of humanities grad students who was completing a degree with a significant amount of digital content. So I don't know that I as an individual was important, but I was certainly part of that initial group of people who didn't even really find themselves, their way to each other as a group because these structures, you know, the DH conferences and the VAT camps and the DH centers on campuses had really not fully cohered at that point. So we didn't identify ourselves to each other as being part of a coherent group, even though in retrospect, we certainly were. And the fact that I was involved with EKI as I was doing this certainly helped to make me feel less lonely and isolated and crazy because not only was I finding older scholars in a range of different fields and disciplines and from around the world who were doing work that I wanted to emulate, but I was also starting to find my way to a certain number of fellow grad students who were trying to kind of poke at the same spots that I was.
1: Another way of asking the question, on the other hand, is do you think the department now is more willing to entertain a path like yours for the graduate students that are there now or coming in? That's one of the legacy questions I think I'm asking here is, at Berkeley now, do you think the history department is looking at these uh, as a model to go through, one of the potential models beyond the standard dissertation?
2: Yeah, I haven't stayed in close enough touch with that department to know for sure. So I don't know whether this has had an impact on coursework or whether there are any internal kind of policies and procedures documents for graduate students that lay this out as an option. Certainly, the AHA now has good documentation about how to treat and evaluate digital work. There's a D-Lab, Digital Lab for the Humanities and Social Sciences at Berkeley that's up and running now. So I assume it's easier for students now than it was when I was finishing my degree. But I also assume there, as with anywhere else, that things are advisor by advisor, that you can find your way to an advisor who knows how to mentor a project like this or someone who doesn't. So I think we're still in this kind of period of transition in the profession as a whole, about how we deal with projects like this. I mean, for grad students, but really for scholars at any rank. And um, whether, for instance, to treat a large-scale digital forward project as the equivalent of a monograph for tenure and promotion, that's still absolutely an open question and it's a profession that evolves slowly and is conservative about these kinds of evaluation questions. Something that I'm partially sympathetic about in fact, which is to say that given that the absolute foundation of our profession is about peer review and that we don't yet know how to peer review digital projects. Mm -hmm. I'm sympathetic to this. I do think that there are good reasons to assert that any digital forward scholar also has to have an infrastructure of traditional print publications. I say that with some hesitation, since it means that digital forward scholars need to do essentially twice as much work as our peers who don't use those kinds of methods. But given that we don't have genres the digital humanities. We don't have good answers to questions about persistence, that is knowing that these kinds of things will continue to exist for very long. We don't have publications, I mean in the sense of sort of third party publishers who evaluate manuscripts, seek revisions put them through an internal process and put out stable versions, right? We don't have anything for our digital project yet around dealing with works in the same way that we do with print publications. And so we are still in a transitional time in terms of knowing how to deal with these kinds of things for promotion and tenure. So as much as I am often part of conversations about how nice it would be to give more recognition to digital projects, I do understand that it will either take a significant amount of more evolution in terms of the ecosystems around the digital project or significant changes to thinking about peer review or both.
0: So I did take a very quick look at the Song Gazetteer you created. The the Digital Gazetteer of the Song Dynasty. Yes. Yes, the Digital Gazetteer for Song Dynasty. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection of that to the book project.
2: Yeah, so the thing that I began as that list of longhand instances of spatial change that I wrote out as a grad student is what ended up as the Digital Gazetteer of the Song Dynasty. And I want to here acknowledge the work of Elijah Meeks, who was then my graduate student, who is a superstar database developer and was not the co-author of the book. The book was my work intellectually, but the database was absolutely a co-authored project with Elijah and is something that I would not have been able to conceptualize without having the collaboration of somebody who had been a serious developer in the software industry before coming to grad school and then left grad school to go back to being a developer again. So um, this project, like so many projects in the digital humanities, is absolutely collaborative and absolutely required people from multiple intellectual backgrounds and trajectories to get together with one another. In terms of the relationship between the digital gazetteer and the book, the book absolutely relies on the gazetteer. So essentially, the argument of the book is that you can see the Spatial investment of the Song state change over time by looking at how the density of its local government units changed over time and across space. That is, at a thousand years remove, one of the untapped sources that we have for understanding how invested the state was in different parts of, it, of its realm at different times and in different places is literally being able to count up those units, right? Essentially, I was looking at two kinds of units. There are counties, which are the most local unit and are basically repositories for tax collection, more or less. And then there are prefectures, which governed a number of counties and were basically repositories for military activity. And so you can not only look at the total density of these local government units, and and let me backpedal and say, both counties and prefectures had administrative staff deputed and installed directly by the imperial court. So these are the local manifestations of the imperial court. So you can look at the ratio of counties and prefectures to understand the relative balance of civil and military activities in different parts of the empire, and you can look at the total density of both counties and prefectures in order to understand essentially the extractive and colonial sides of imperial state power. And you can see all of those things change over time. So the basic... of statistical quantitative core and the mapping core of that work is the digital gazetteer of the Song Dynasty that I built with the co-authorship of Elijah Meeks. Of course, all of the analysis, all of the texts, all of the historical work, putting this in the context of understanding the Song state as a political fact on the ground and a territorial fact on the ground, that's all my work as a historian. But the reason I started making that longhand list of changes back in grad school is because I started reading all of these bits and pieces of text about spatial change that were being written by song administrators, you know, talking back and forth to each other that didn't make any sense in isolation. So, for instance, I remember one of the first ones I found was this imperial edict from the early southern song around the time of the song jin war where the emperor said you know there have been natural disasters there have been war most of the population of this particular region south of the huai river has fled their homes and can't pay their taxes so let's abolish a bunch of counties And i was like holy cow oh my god that's like that does not makes sense to me. Like, why would you deal with that by just, you know, abolishing the counties, right? I mean, you don't just, I mean, here in the United States, we don't just change around our organization of local government. When we have disasters, we keep the government units stable, we deal with disasters in other ways. So I I was starting to realize by reading these things that were kind of isolated in time and place from each other, but that had that sort of pattern that this was a major part of the strategy for how the imperial state was dealing with issues in its localities. So I could read those documents, but I was not able to make them into a coherent account together without having done the database.
0: So these were the sources that you were using for this then were literally Gazetteers Berkeley has or that you were, where was the information for this coming from? Right, for the database part? Uh, for, For a little bit of both. I mean, your original sources, maybe say one thing about your original sources and then how that got into the database in some sort of form.
2: Right, so really the core of the project as it started out as my dissertation kind of had two pieces. The core place where I was finding these Edicts and memorials about specific instances of spatial change was coming mostly out of a particular chapter in Song Huiyao, which is the, you know, a compendium of surviving government documents from the Song Dynasty. Mm -hmm. So that was the first place where I just started kind of on spec you know reading and reading and reading these things and there was a, a whole three chapters in Song on the topic of the xili yenga this spatial change mm-hmm. in the Song Kwa dynasty so i was reading those documents and that's where i was kind of intrigued yet simultaneously baffled by them and then the source that i went to to start thinking about where these isolated instances where i was reading documentary accounts where i was trying to put that in context was a source called the Alphabetical Index of Geographical Names in Song China. I believe that's the title by someone named Pope Wright, which was published as a typewritten kind of, you know, the characters were written out by hand and the text was typewritten. And then it was kind of, you know, photocopied and bound and made available by the Journal of Song Yuan Studies. And, you know, the published version still has kind of written, you know, on the first page of it, you know, personal copy, Peter Bowl It was published at some point by the Journal of Sun Yuan Studies. And that is not set up according to these instances of spatial change. It's set up, it's literally just an alphabetical list of place names. It's just intended to be an index to every county and prefecture and provincial circuit that ever existed in the Song Dynasty. But it includes for each of those named places, the date that it was founded, the date, if any, that that it was abolished, any other changes that it underwent. And that source is based on three different comprehensive gazetteers of the Song Dynasty. And in all cases, it lists citation from the original source. So I feel, on the one hand, working with that as my core source gave me one thing, it's structured, it's partially in English, it was easy to work with. And the fact that it was based on a fairly constrained number of song sources was actually helpful, because it meant that sort of conceptually, I was able to get my hands around it, I felt confident that it was doing something comprehensively, not necessarily that it comprehensively picked up every nuance of everything that had happened in the Song Dynasty a thousand years earlier, but that it had rendered the resources in a structured way. Mm -hmm. So that was a really great basis for making my digital gazetteer, which essentially is really a digital model of the material in Hope Wright. And then I moved on from there, but that's really the core of it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, moving uh, ahead some years here. Let's start first with the, the sort of big project that you're working on or have recently worked on, which is the Yellow River Mm-hmm. project. So tell us a little bit about it. And I'd particularly like to hear about sort of first, maybe the larger research question conceptually. And then if you could maybe talk to us a little bit about technically what's being mm-hmm. done, that would be great.
2: So the really big, super abstract question in the Yellow River Project, from a digital humanities point of view, is how to deal with spatial and temporal scale. That's at the very, very most abstract level. And that's also because I've become increasingly interested, you know, as a historian and as someone who reads theory in questions about the sort of the the new Brodellianism, right? How do you deal with the long durée, especially in ways that are now possible with digital technology and in the context of insights from environmental history? How do you do these really large scale things, understand how it is that human activity, human social organization, the relationship between people and the non-human world, how have those things changed over hundreds and thousands of years? How do you do work at that scale, but then also still do a kind of narrative that surfaces people's agency and the disruptive and contingent nature of individual events? Because both of those things are important. And I don't think we really know. Rodell certainly didn't know how to put both of those scales of activity together in one narrative. So I started this Yellow River project partly out of an interest in wanting to do something. I mean, after the first project, which was very spatial, but also very abstract, Right, in the sense that nobody can actually see state presence on the ground. I can reconstruct it, but it wasn't something that was physically there, you know, in the sense of, you know, walls and border markers for the most part. So I wanted to do something that was more equally spatial but more tangible, which was the first thing that got me interested in environmental history. Increasingly, of course, I'm interested in environmental history because I think it's a matter of urgency for our species today to think about environmental change and to understand the impact of people on the environment and vice versa in historical times. So it's become, for me, a project with an increasing amount of presentist Urgency, But that's, that's really where it started. And then also with these very abstract questions, which also, I think, get back to this, these presentist kind of issues. You know, how, if at all, do people see environmental change and environmental impact during the scale of a human lifetime prior to modern instrumentation and modern science and act on it in historical times? Did that happen? Right. If I can understand how the ecosystem around the Yellow River watershed was degrading as a result of human activity over a course of decades and centuries, is that something that people at the time, as it was happening, knew was happening? And did they know why it was happening? So that's also what animates these questions about scale. So that's uh, really at the most kind of abstract and conceptual level. Those are the kinds of questions that I'm trying to answer. When I embarked on this project, I knew that I wanted to do it in a digital way. I also didn't feel like from a data modeling point of view, I realized that what was innovative about the digital gazetteer of the Song Dynasty is that it's sort of an inside-out gazetteer. That is, thinking about that original Hope right source material, I started out with something that was a list of names and kind of turned it into something that was a, a list of change events. And that's really innovative. And I've written some articles specifically about this idea of the event gazetteer. So part of what I wanted to do in terms of pushing forward digital innovation with the Yellow River Project was to think further about this question of historical Historical database organized around the event, and that seemed to me, still seems to me, is still a work in progress. I have a predilection for projects that take a really long time. And <laughs> so once again, here I am, following up on my experience with the digital gazetteer of the Song Dynasty. What I was able to find was a set of print historical sources in Chinese that were data tables about different aspects of Yellow River history, environmental history, agricultural history. Here, I want to give a a shout out to Kai Chi Hua, who was my grad student at Merced and did a staggering amount of really, really tedious data entries. I identified approximately a dozen Chinese sources, some of which with multiple data tables, so roughly 20 data tables about events and culled from primary sources, all of them pointing back to what the sources were, and each one would say something like, in year 1527, a Yellow River dike blew out at such and such a location, inundating the following places. Or in 1682, the following amount of money was requisitioned from the court in order to dredge the water course at such and such a place. So all of that stuff, I mean, the the imperial court really, really cares a lot about the Yellow River. It always has. Of course, the founding myth of the Chinese imperial state is Da Yu Yu the Great who channeled all of the empire's waters into stable courses and thus created the basis for taxation and imperialism. That is the founding myth of the empire. So doing water history has been very, very, very important in the Chinese tradition straight on through literally from warring States time to the present. That's why there's so much of this material available. So with Kai Chi's help, I've used that to develop an event gazetteer. The stage it's at right now is that all of the content is there. It's finished, but it's in a big, rough, unworkable spreadsheet. And so in terms of kind of throwing out there to people who might be listening to this podcast, thinking about how to get started on a project like this, my experience is that the really, really, the first piece of hard work is the conceptual work. That is understanding what it is that you're trying to model and understanding why there might be good intellectual payoff in doing something as difficult as all of that. Then gathering together the information and making sure that you are presenting the information in an internally consistent way. That is, you know what you mean by an event. You have the same kind of information for each of your events. You're always pointing back to the primary sources and to the intermediary, secondary sources. That's the second tab. Then putting it in a format that makes for a good data visualization and good data analysis and makes sense to a computer is a separate and tertiary task. And I really believe very strongly in collaboration and that task does not happen to be one in which I have a lot of expertise. I know how to ask the questions, I know how to talk to a developer. I have profound admiration for colleagues in the digital humanities who could actually do that work themselves. I am not such a person. And so I'm describing a workflow that I think makes sense for anybody, but certainly makes sense for me and allows somebody with a relatively more modest amount of technical expertise to nevertheless do a project that's pretty ambitious. Obviously, it requires enough funding in order to get together with such a person or to have a collaborator who really, truly wants to be a co-author and intellectual partner and do the work for that reason. But, you know, that's the way that workflow has worked for me and kind of sort of liberates me if I think about it that way in to conceptualize something really ambitious where I don't know how to do every single one of the parts myself. So that's the database part of the Yellow River Project is this database of events. There are roughly 5,000 of them from Warring States Times to 1911 that are attested in the primary sources and in these intermediary secondary sources. And that will ultimately have its life as a database and as a GIS, because all of these events can be georeferenced. In its instantiation, ultimately as a GIS shapefile, it can exist as part of an atlas, but in its instantiation as a relational database, it can also be queried in complex ways that are not necessarily spatial. That is by event types as they change over time, sources, number of people impacted by different events. So the trajectory of the rate of eventfulness on the river, there are all kinds of things that I can do with it that aren't spatial. The same was through the digital gazetteer, of the Song Dynasty. It happens to be that I was able to easily generate a ton of maps for my book and to look at what the data looked like laid out spatially. But really, the core of that analysis did not involve maps or GIS at all. It happened in its existence as an SQL database. And mm-hmm. the same is emerging to be the case with the Yellow River project as well. But in addition to that, I'm also assembling a bunch of sort of born spatial kinds of data, such as the various courses that the Yellow River has occupied, land use, land cover, slope, soil, environmental information, kind of, you know, core spatial kind of information that I can use together. And I should add, I'm in transition right now from UC Merced, where I've been working for the last dozen years to the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm still physically situated in Merced right now. And I've been working with our spatial analysis lab here at Merced in order to start to get my hands around all of the spatial data. But my immediate next task, I now have a big mess of data, is going to be to put all of this together into a data model that makes it possible for me to do the analysis I'm doing. I envision This project, you know, in the next two years coming together in the form of a book, you know, a real book with a spine and pages published by University Press, but also in parallel to that, a really nice online digital atlas where I make the data available and interactive maps and some text, because I think it's a project that needs to live in both of those kinds of ways.
0: Um, I'm really happy you mentioned the spatial analysis group at, at UC Merced. I had no idea that they, they had a group. I, I guess I'd like to know more about how you work with them, or how what they're helping you do right mm-hmm. now. I mean, I think this is you know, something we've been talking about here, you know, using the other resources you have on mm-hmm. campus so you're not just right. kind of alone on your project or, or whatnot. And especially with spatial analysis, it's a whole other ball game. I'm not somebody who has familiarity with GIS either or data visualization for that matter. So it's something I've tried to dip my toes into, but man, it gets complicated very fast, mm-hmm. particularly with yep. maps. There's all kinds of tools and things out there now and Wow. If you could talk a little bit about maybe what they're helping you do or, or, or how they, how you work with them.
2: Yeah. And let me say for starters that ArcGIS, which is the industry standard for spatial analysis and spatial visualization, still has a really steep learning curve. And, you know, every so often I get myself up to a sort of intermediate level. And then I realize that there's a whole other thing <laughs> that, I'm to do that I don't know how to do or you know there's some I get some error message that baffles me or there's a big software upgrade and it really is still to this day, even as it's become easier and easier, it's still really an area of analysis and expertise that is still really hard for those of us who also have other things to do in our professional lives to really get. <laughs> I have become comfortable with giving myself permission to not be an expert in the things I'm not in. We all have to do that. I mean, that's, I guess, part of being human. So UC Merced is the new campus in the University of California system, and I have been there as a member of the founding faculty. I arrived a year before the students, and a big piece of my life outside of my own scholarship has been getting the kinds of institutions in place on campus that allow the university to function in the way that we all envision it functioning. So I was one of the founders of SPARC, the Spatial Analysis and Research Center. So shout out to Lucy Mercedes SPARC here on this interview, and SPARC has some core base funding for from the university and then beyond that gets its additional funding through grants and contracts and recharge. And Spark supports a physical lab space with computers that are tricked out with ArcGIS and other relevant software, GPS units for loaner, that sort of thing. Nice big uh, map size scanners, so nice little lab facility. And then one project management staff person and a couple of student assistants. At given time. So it's a modest but nice center. So I've been working with the project management staff person who's a career GIS project manager and then with, you know, some student time off and on as we could allocate that to the project either from the Spark Core budget or from my funds. So what the Spark project manager whose name is Aaron Much shout out also to Erin as an individual. My work is very collaborative. And for that reason, it's also really important for me to make sure that the students and the staff people, the librarians, everyone who makes it possible to do my work gets the acknowledgement that they deserve. So Erin has been helping me with digitizing paper maps and georeferencing the information that is on the paper map and then kind of coordinating all of that information together into a unified geodatabase. And because it's historical information, it's at multiple scales of accuracy, it's at multiple spatial and temporal scales, she, as somebody who doesn't specifically have training in historical GIS. She's done amazing, amazing work, but she's kind of hit her data modeling limits also. So my next step that involves getting my events database kind of wrangled into a proper format and then also integrating it together with all this other kind of material. And I'm in the process right now of hiring a postdoc Hmm. who is going to be able to help me with that. My goal is to hire someone with this kind of historical data modeling expertise at the core of their knowledge.
0: And I think a lot of the people who are really good at the GIS, they've made pretty much a career out of it. Something you said earlier uh, that I'm always trying to get across that I think is really important, it doesn't matter if it's if we're talking about maps or we're talking about any sort of data visualization, but I've recently found myself emphasizing we need to backpedal a bit and talk more about content development and conceptual mm-hmm. questions before just, hey, this is cool, let's do a map of it. I'm really happy to hear somebody else who's been in the field a while uh, working with maps say that because that's that's sort of my beef right now is I don't really yep. know why we're mapping something if we don't have the questions first. Mm-hmm. Why are we mm-hmm. scanning and maps? Why are we putting points on a map if it's not actually going to have a lot of significance in sort of our overall project questions. And like I said, learning the tools is such a steep learning curve that I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. is it worth the investment of of time in in doing that? Yeah,
2: exactly. No, this is always my first conversation with people who come to me for advice or feedback about how to get going with a digital project. And this is where the fact that honestly, in spite of my many years in the field, my actual technical competencies are relatively low serves me well. Because my first question when I talk to people who want to embark on a digital or spatial project is how much firepower do you need? Right. You know, is this something that actually requires you to get going, you know, with full on, this is supposed to manage your entire urban sewer system, ArcGIS, or is it something where you just want to see a few points on a map, which literally you can do in Adobe Illustrator. You can do, if it's really simple, you can do just like with tools in Paint or PowerPoint or something. Don't open ArcGIS unless you have a really, really good reason to do it. And don't even do a giant database development project if you only have, you know, 50 or 100 objects that are of interest to you. So because this work is expensive, time-consuming, collaborative, difficult, at its most rarefied level requires so many different kinds of technical competency, And plans for how to maintain all of this data. Start by asking your intellectual questions. Second, figure out what content you have that can allow you to answer those questions and then figure out what is the least technical, lowest cost, most efficient solution for dealing with those things.
0: Mm -hmm. That's my take on this. I think it's a good take on it. Um, I mean, It's, it's well, a good
1: list, a good it, it,
0: list. This absolutely wonderful new project with the World Historical Atlas, which sounds amazing. Um,
2: so a gazetteer, and let me just say for the Asianists who are listening to this, that in in uh, Chinese history land, when we say gazetteer, we think of it as the English translation for defuncter, mm-hmm. which is the spatial encyclopedias of local of counties and prefectures and other kinds of units. So this is not that kind of gazetteer. This is not a project that's about the defuncture. It's a project about place name databases. And in the world outside Chinese history, a gazetteer is a place name database. And you referenced, I think, in the introduction that I just co-edited a volume called Placing Names, which is about that kind of gazetteer, and that's um, co-edited with Merrick X. Berman, who is a developer at the Center for Geographical Analysis at Harvard, and you know the longtime developer associated with the China Historical GIS. And then also Humphrey Sovel, who is the mastermind behind the Great Britain Historical GIS and the Vision of Britain project and Old Maps Online and many, many other extraordinary and very groundbreaking European historical GIS projects. So they're my co-editors on Placing Names, and that is a really good introduction to kind of the state of the field and the state of the art on what these kinds of place name databases are all about, how to use them together, and what kinds of analysis you can do once you have one or a networked many of them. So for a project which isn't a spatial history project, but as you back into it, you end up with a ton of place names, a gazetteer is a really, really beautiful way to think about your work. So a gazetteer is basically just a list of place names and a sort of an inside out gazetteer, as it were, is a database of information, in your case, about cases, but where each of those cases is associated with a place. In a networked world of multiple interlinked gazetteers, all of the places that somebody else, somebody whose main interest is in the places, has done the work of naming those places, locating them in an administrative hierarchy, noting what alternate names those places may have had over time, and indicating where they sit on a map. That's a gazetteer. In a network of multiple gazetteers and other kinds of spatially rich documents, you don't have to redo the work of thinking about the places. You can link your database with somebody else's gazetteer, inherit all the information about the places from the gazetteer, and see your places and your information made visible on a map. So that's the project that I'm embarking on. Um, I'm delighted to learn um, that I've been funded. I'm not at liberty yet to say too much about that, but I've just learned uh, within the last week that I've been funded to embark on This project. And this is not specifically a Chinese history or an Asian history project. It's a global scale project modeled on the work that was begun by the Pelagios Project, which is kind of emerging out of the classical Mediterranean world to build linked open data ecosystem of gazetteers and spatially significant materials about the classical Mediterranean world. And I think has really solved a lot of exciting, questions about infrastructure and data modeling for working with multiple interoperable projects in that community. And so I am now embarking on the small task of doing that, not just for the classical Mediterranean, but for the whole world at all places and times, especially focus on the last 500 years because Pelagios is moving forward, kind of upward and outward from the classical Mediterranean. And so hopefully we'll meet in the middle
0: well, con- it congratulations. It's wonderful that you have funding you. for this project.
2: Yes, Thank you. So, I'm so excited about this um, because it's very, very ambitious, but at the same time, I think we have a work plan and a methodology in place that will make it doable. And in a sense, this loops back to what we were trying to do way back when, almost 20 years ago at EKI, But at that time, the methodologies didn't really exist to do it. And so this now kind of gets us back to the kinds of challenges that Ikai was trying to solve, but with contemporary semantic web linked open data approaches that I think are already proving to be really fruitful. The goal of this World Historical Gazetteer Project is to build what we're calling a spine, which is a core reference gazetteer of roughly in the order of 10,000 place names. We don't have that as an absolute goal, but the point is that it's not 1,000, but it's not 1 million. And the goal is to roughly cover every place in the world broadly, but shallowly with an infrastructure of place names from the last 500 years in particular. So this is going to be polities, settlements, but also river basins, ocean currents, islands, and then also language names and ethnonyms for places that are not organized into polities. So that then anybody who has a really specialized gazetteer or gazetteer-like database of something full of place names can then link it to the core gazetteer. So we won't have the name of every village that existed in China in 1967, but we certainly will have the provinces. We will certainly have the major cities. I assume we'll have a number of counties and then you can associate your gazetteer and say, well, in this county, we have an additional hundred place names of, you know, every village or every commune. And then a user who had other information, you know, who was just browsing for what was happening around this county in the 1960s could find their way to it. You yourself could inherit other people's information. Maybe somebody had information about census data from that region. Maybe somebody has information about, cultural institutions in that region. And gradually, this becomes a network of interrelated information about places around the world.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. It's a massive undertaking. It yeah. sounds like I, I know very little about linked open data. I feel like I've always worked on projects that are, are very sort of confined. I think it would be great in order to share the information and have it linked in that way. But I guess you have to get started on it. That's, what, that's why you just got funded. So this is just in yeah. the beginning stages. Right.
2: And the commitment that we're making for this three year grant funded project is to build this spine, you know, this core reference work and then to work with about a dozen partners who already have linkable information to demonstrate that doing the linking works and that the spine and the collaborating projects can inherit information from one another. And then if all of that works, then we can make it open to the world for any other kind of project to participate in. And hopefully, if all goes well, it grows into something big and exciting over time.
1: With no disrespect to Merced, it sounds like Pittsburgh is also going to be a good place for you to be pursuing this project.
2: I think that's right. It's been wonderful being at Merced all these years and looping back to the earlier part of the conversation about supporting and recognizing digital work, Merced has been a place where I have never felt, I mean, even before I was tenured, I never felt like I was going to be penalized for doing that kind of work or that that kind of work was going to be disregarded. But on the other hand, it's still a small institution that doesn't have the range of staff and capacities and sources of funding that a more mature research university does and so i'm looking forward to taking this work to pittsburgh does pittsburgh also
0: have things like the spatial analysis group have you figured this out yet so i'm going to be
2: the director of a world history center oh wow Um, super excited about so excited about this and although it's not specifically oriented only toward digital work my expectation is that I'm going to do a lot of digitally facing work from there. I'm following in the large and highly visible footsteps of Patrick Manning, who just retired in whose position and I will be holding, who founded the World History Center. And he did a bunch of global scale, collaborative digital work through the centers in terms of the people I want to be sure to acknowledge and pay respect to in this interview. He's another one and his work has absolutely helped to set up the conditions for what I'm trying to accomplish there. And there's a big initiative to do digital humanities and social sciences at Pitt. And I think part of why I'm being brought in is because the expectation is that I'll be
0: part of helping to Get some of those things underway. That sounds fantastic. I should say that um, I've had a few emails in the past from graduate potential graduate students or graduate students who are looking at where they should go and do their work. They're either in their master's degree or they just finished a bachelor's degree, or they're working at a library somewhere. So it sounds like Pittsburgh might be one place to to, to yeah, try and then, go. Then- um, to
2: Pittsburgh, yes. If all goes well, this is going to be a focal point for graduate students who want to do digital work at the global scale. Asian for sure, but hopefully to be able to really take the visibility of that department in world history and link it in with these kinds of digital initiatives.
0: Thank you, Ruth, so much for joining us today. We've, I learned a lot about the world of Atlases, gazetteers, and spatial history that I didn't know. So thank you so much for taking the time, especially I know I asked because of my time difference. I asked you to get up very early, so I appreciate that. And also thanks to Alan and Maggie for being here and co-hosting. Um, it was our pleasure,
1: and I, I I could keep going in the conversation. It's been fascinating. Yes. I do look forward to more conversations in the future.
2: Yes. Yeah, Good. Well, and thank Indeed, you. Indeed, I agree. This is such a great chance for me to talk about things that I really care a lot about and love talking about.
0: Links to all the projects and articles and probably people's websites mentioned in today's podcast will be available on the website, dheastasia.org, where you can also leave comments and feedback. And uh, in previous episodes, we haven't had too many comments and feedback, but occasionally people also like to leave them on Facebook. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. We hope you'll tune in next time.